I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday morning. The sun is shining. The world is alive. Birds chirping. I hate it. <laughs> I used to be really mad when spring would come around because the birds would wake me up in the morning. I hated oh, it. I love it. I like it now. But I used to like get really mad at the yeah. birds outside my window because they just love to wake me up at 5 a.m. <laughs> really bothered me. That's how you know it's spring when the birds are shrieking. Oh, they're so excited. I hate them. Oh, they're so just cute. kidding. I'm I a little them. nerd. And when I hear the birds, I'm like, that one is a cardinal. Oh, it's a tufted tisk mouse. I'm like, wow. <laughs> That's you you don't have a bird feeder, do you? I do. <gasps> oh. I do. I haven't been putting out bird seed though because of the avian flu. I don't want any of my sweet little birds to get sick. Sure. But normally I would put out, I really want a bird feeder that I can stick to the window so Salem, my cat, can bird watch. Yes. But I feel like she would go too crazy and like break the glass or something. So yeah, I'm not I can see her doing that. She's a, she's a fiend when it comes to food. <laughs> yes. And birds are her food in, in nature, of course. Speaking of nature, I had not a corrections corner, but an additional infos corner to add on to an episode we covered recently. Uh, episode 87, we covered the case of a man named Seth Bader, who brutally harassed his ex-wife to the point of making her try and commit suicide three times, getting their adopted son involved, and then ultimately shooting her in the head, killing her, and then burying her in Maine. So this all happened in Stratum, New Hampshire. I grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire, which is an adjoining town to Stratum. And as we mentioned in the episode, guys, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen. It's intense. But we did say, like we do whenever we have a case that's recommended to us, we shout out the person who recommended it if they want it to be shouted out. You know, if they want to be anonymous, that's okay too. But we always give shout outs. And we had one person, Jen, who recommended it. And also my dad who recommended it. After we recorded the episode and before it was posted, I FaceTimed my parents because I live in Maine and they live in New Hampshire and I miss them all the time. So I called them and I said, hey, you know, the episode that's coming out tomorrow is about Seth Bader. And my dad goes, oh, great, you know, whatever. And he goes, and you talked about the house, right? And I said, what? And he said, the house. And I said, oh, my God, I forgot to tell this very important detail on the episode. Very important detail. So without getting into too specific of specifics, I, like I said, I grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire. I lived there until I was almost 22 when I moved here to Maine. And of those 22 years, I lived in the same house for about, at that point, it was like 16 years. Mm -hmm. And that's where my parents live currently. You know, it's all great, la, la, la. And I knew this fact and I completely boofed it. In my brain, it was gone. <laughs> it turns out that our neighbors, and I'm not going to share the proximity, but just in our neighborhood, somewhere somewhere we passed every day, we saw often, the neighbors, we knew them quite well, etc., etc. Well, it turns out that the house that they lived in was indeed the house that Vicky, the victim, and her husband, Seth, the one who murdered her, lived in when they were married in the house that Vicky lived in when she was killed. She was not killed at that house. She was killed at his house in Stratum, New Hampshire. But at the time, she was living in this house in a close proximity to mine 
in that neighborhood. The very same house where a pipe bomb was placed in the mailbox. The very same house where her parakeets were roasted in the oven. It was known as the Bader house afterwards. And so my neighbors, when we moved in, they had already been living there. And my dad was talking to them and they said, yeah, we got this house for very cheap because of what happened. And my dad was like, what happened? And that's when he learned that this is where Vicki Bader had lived. And the whole mailbox, parakeets, windows shot out with a BB gun, all that stuff. They had lived in this house. And apparently at the time they bought the house, it was something like $86,000, which is I think if it's similar to ours, like a three bed, two bath, you know, in New Hampshire, honestly, it's not super cheap to live in New Hampshire. Um, yeah. So they got this house for next to nothing. That's pennies. Pennies. Because there was a murder victim who lived there. Jesus Christ. And I completely boofed it. I forgot 100%. (laughs) And guys, when my dad was like, you didn't, tell that on the show i was like oh my god i can't believe that's the whole reason why we covered it and i didn't even mention i totally forgot totally forgot and this is a house like i've been in that house isn't that scary there were parakeets murdered in there and bb gun pellets shooting the windows and tires slashed and abuse when they still live together that is And it really puts it in perspective. The craziest shit that you would never expect to happen close to you always does can happen in your, literally in your neighborhood. Yep. Where you can look outside of your window and look at that very house Mm -hmm. and picture Vicky coming home Mm -hmm. and finding her pipe bomb mailbox, calling the police, fearing for her life. That is terrifying. And it, like you said, Katie, puts it really into perspective. Oh, my God. It can happen anywhere. And we've covered quite a few cases um, that happened in Exeter yeah. and Stratum and, like, very close by, like the um, abduction of Tammy Belanger, my dad's childhood friend's little sister. We talked about David Kwiatkowski, who spread hep C at the Exeter Hospital. We talked about Sheila Labar, who killed three men in Epping right next door. Yep. We talked about... Pamela Smart, who had her husband killed right next door and the trial happened in Exeter and she worked in Hampton and like all this stuff. It is very close quarters. And until we started this podcast, I had no idea how close quarters crime really can be. And it's kind of scary. It is kind of scary, especially because one of the whole reasons that we do this podcast is because you don't think of New England as having all of this crime right it's a safe boring Mm -hmm. couple of states with leaves that change color and clam chowder and moose and boring and no crime no crime (laughs) turns out there's lots of crime i just yeah just kidding jk it's nuts so that really puts it into perspective for me and every day i'm reminded how scary this world can be for sure so close to home So I just wanted to update you guys and tell you that that was a crazy fact that happened in my neighborhood. I still can't believe I totally forgot, but there, I covered it. That was episode, again, 87. Go check it out if you haven't listened. It is really fascinating and also very sad. Yeah, it was 
I think researching that one, especially, there was just so much, like you thought it couldn't get any worse. And then as you kept reading an article, you're like, oh, wow, it, it gets way worse. Way worse. It's awful. So check that out. This episode has nothing to do with that. I just wanted to mention it because, I mean, come on. Instead, this episode is actually... I I think, Katie, you said before we started that it would bring up a lot of good conversation. Yes. And I agree. I think it's a very interesting case because of the ethical dilemmas within the case. It's pretty terrible. Yes. Right before we get started, I'm going to interject with a brief, brief, brief little ray of sunshine. A positive before the negative. Our bias of coffees. Oh. I feel like we haven't done a little bias of coffee shout out in a little while. So I'm going to throw it out there and say if you if you want, big if, no pressure at all, mm-hmm. you guys just being here and listening is more than we could ever ask for. Very blessed. If you're feeling a little financially generous and you would like to buy myself a coffee and Liz a non-caffeinated beverageino. Liz does not partake in coffee. Sorry. That's okay. (laughs) You could go to our website, truecrimene.com, and under our contact us page, under that handy dandy submission tool you guys are probably really sick of hearing me talk about, (laughs) we have our buy us a coffee. There's a little button that says thank you and you can buy us a coffee if you so choose. Big stressor on the if. Kendra, bought us two coffees thanks kendra thank you so much kendra and kendra wrote because you can write a little comment if you want kendra wrote i'm active duty military stationed a couple of thousands of miles away from home connecticut mass rhode island is home for kendra and your podcast and banter fill a tiny corner of my homesick heart thank you for all you do to spread awareness and work to bring closure to families who need it the most enjoy your sweet treats Thank you, Kendra, and thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you so much, Kendra. That is so thoughtful. That's, that's like, wonderful. That's really sweet. I know. I'm glad we could kind of give you a piece of home. Yeah. Because I know as people who are from New England, or you're a New England transplant because you were born in Brooklyn, <laughs> but, you know, I think when you're homesick, it's nice to have some, I don't know, just hear about your home be like, I know where that is. I can picture that in my head, you know? So we're glad to do it. Thanks for taking this journey with us, Kendra. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. Yeah. We appreciate you. And thanks for your generous donation to our tummies. We appreciate you. And now to the negatives. (laughs) We'll talk about this case. Guys, stick around. It might be short. It's definitely not going to be sweet, but it'll be interesting. So stick with it. And without further ado, today we will be covering Stephen Marshall. Katie, would you mind giving me all of the sources you had for this case? I've been waiting. Oh. I've been waiting for you to ask. Oh. Well, I'm asking, so tell me. Wikipedia. I just... God, we love Wikipedia. And the joy doesn't end there. No. Murderpedia. God. We're going to keep the joy going a little, a little one more time here medium.com i do love medium.com medium.com i know we talk about wikipedia murderpedia we love them we adore them medium.com you are sometimes an unsung hero absolutely we adore you i love medium times argus and prisonlegalnews.org beautiful both beautiful yeah just sometimes you know the little runner-up 
they pale in comparison to the big three. Absolutely. It's all right, though. It's we, okay. We're here today. We are here. I also, in addition to you, had Wikipedia and Murderpedia. I had Prison Legal News. I had Boston.com. And I also had an article from CBC News. Incredible. Yes. And unfortunately, not a whole bunch of information. It was a lot of piecing together little things, Mm -hmm. but still interesting nonetheless. Really fascinating. Yeah. And again, brings up a lot of interesting conversation. Because again, there's an ethical dilemma within the murder. So it's like, "Mm," makes you think. Katie, would you mind kicking us off? I would love to. God. Stephen was born in Fort Worth, Texas. His family moved to Nova Scotia when he was a kid. His parents divorced in 1996. And it seems like before the divorce, during the divorce, after the divorce, Stephen was just moving around a lot. Yeah. Which is really hard when you're a kid. It's really hard when you're supposed to be putting down roots and developing and making friends and having stability. It's really hard to bounce around. Yeah. Three years after his parents' divorce, Stephen moved to Idaho with his dad, who ended up serving three years as the mayor of cul-de-sac, which was the town they lived in. I just want to point out, I think the name of a town being cul-de-sac is kind of awesome. I just love that. I don't know why. (laughs) And the fact that he was the mayor, kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Pretty cool. At the age of 14, Stephen set up his own website with links to, quote, the sweetest pics of weapons that you can find anywhere. Sweetest spelled S-W-E-E-T-I-S-T. Mm, very good, Stephen. <laughs> and this is very, this reminds me a lot of Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris of the Columbine shooting. Because Eric had a whole website, a whole blog about how much he hated everything. He wanted everyone to die. He hated life. He hated school. He hated women. He hated all this stuff. So it's very, it's a very similar in that way. And is this an influence for Steven? No idea. But this did happen a year after Columbine. So I'm wondering if there was some influence because it was a pretty well-known fact afterwards that Eric had this website. Mm -hmm. So maybe. On the website, there was a section for Steven's dislikes. A whole big old list. They included, quote, minorities getting special treatment, men who don't keep their women in line, asthma. <laughs> Gotta include asthma in there, you know? I like that that was his third thought. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by women in general, the beautiful people. What does that even mean? My job cleaning, school, society, the disgusting commercialization of our daily lives, the economic system, capitalism, in parentheses, but it'll do for now, rich people, the United Nations, a world government, the feds, the man and his rules, civil oppression, and the Patriot Act of 2001. Like, so random, but not at the same time. (laughs) Like, it's very clear that he does not like women. He doesn't like society. And he doesn't like, like, governmental structure, apparently. He is so full of angst. Asthma. (laughs) Right up top. (laughs) Number three. Asthma. Right after minorities getting special treatment, which of course would be number one, and then men who don't keep their women in line, that does top asthma for me as well. Like, what? This is, you're right, Katie, so much angst in this teen. The beautiful people. Like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) 
rich people. The United Nations? I like how the Patriot Act of 2001 is in there. Like, let's bookmark that because he loves weapons. The irony. I mean, he did have a link to the sweetest weapons you'll ever see. (laughs) So it's like, clearly this guy, it almost sounds like the ramblings of someone who is psychotic or mentally ill. Yes. Yep. Or like you see those people who are just unhinged and they're writing manifestos. Yes. Yes. Rambling. Yes. Getting all of their thoughts out there, written down in a place where when they die, they can pass on their thoughts, their thinking. And manifesto, I think, is the great, great word, Katie, because there are a lot of killers that I can think of that have manifestos. Mainly the one off the top of my head, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, Mm -hmm. he had a big old manifesto and he was writing it up and he wanted everyone to read it. And it really speaks to, I think, that they think that they're so profound. Yes. They think that they're so unique and that their thoughts just have to get out there because they are just unique and life-changing and it'll change the world and they just have to write it down and put it in a place where others can see. Yep. You are not special. No. It's always men, too. Like, you guys are not fucking special. I want you guys to name one woman who wrote a manifesto. Thank you. Quick. Quick. Three, two, one. Couldn't. Couldn't. You couldn't do it. I couldn't either. Because it's all men. And interestingly, they're, like, mostly white men. Yeah, isn't that something? That's funny. Anyway. Stephen and his friends set up a club called the Slackers Coalition in Arms. And their main goal was, quote, to provide advice for protecting yourself from the tyrannical educational institution. So school? What is that? Middle school? Yeah. He was Early 14, high school, at freshman? least freshman year. To pr- protect yourself from school. Was that like U.S. history? I think so. Asthma? <laughs> like what? He hated gym class because they made him run and he has asthma. You know, I can empathize with that. <laughs> What it, You know what I bet it was? He had gym first period, so then the rest of the periods of the day, he was sweaty. <laughs> and I'm talking, for both of us, personal experience, because you and I, Katie, had that in high school. I feel like freshman and sophomore year, we had very early on, and so the rest of the day, we were sweaty. Steven, if that's what you were mad about, sorry to say it, but I get it, doesn't mean you do what you did. Right. That's about the only thing we understand here. Yes. High school kind of sucks. But again, I don't think they need to make a whole group about protecting yourself from school. (laughs) I don't know. I think he just didn't like the whole being told what to do, I think is ultimately what he didn't like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Notably at this time, Stephen's friend Chris Peterson Jr. was charged with molesting a minor. His punishment was counseling and probation. Hmm. Interesting. On April 24th of 2001, two teenage boys got into a physical altercation, aka a fight, in his front lawn. Like, Stephen's front lawn. I don't know why, but this really pissed Stephen off, like, so much. So Stephen went inside, grabbed his dad's Colt Sport 223 caliber rifle, and brought it outside. He came out, pointed it at one of the boys, and then shouted, Let him go! Which, of course, naturally, the boys freaked out, ran off, because this guy, he was pointing an assault rifle at them. They're 14, 15. I mean, they're getting their, because they're wrestling in the yard? Scary. 
When confronted by the police, Stephen claimed he had never pointed it at one of the guys, just in near, like it wasn't at one of them. And he said it wasn't a big deal because it wasn't even loaded. Which, honestly, how were those kids supposed to know that? Right. That's still so scary. Having an assault rifle pointed at you? Oh my god. As a result of the incident, Stephen was charged with felony aggravated assault. He was 15. That's a big deal. And also, like, kind of scary for his future. Right. Not for how it would affect his future, but the fact that he was 15 and got a felony. Scary. He was put on probation for six months, made to attend a hunter safety course, and was told not only to write an apology letter, but a five-page paper on teen violence. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he did. He did do that. I think it said that he quoted the NRA as one of his sources for his teen violence page. Oh, great. Yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, sure. That's something. That's good. Despite this incident and the bullying that he had been receiving his whole life, there was even an incident in middle school where his mom had to pull him out of school because he was bullied so bad, which is, that is sucky, you know, that that's terrible. He was described as being quiet, intelligent, and popular, which to me, I don't, I don't really equate pointing an AR-15 and having a list of all the things you hate, which is mostly government and asthma. I don't see that as being a popular attribute but okay uh he likes computers prank phone calls and video games his friends said that he had always had a love for guns which we can tell and that he and his father used to go to gun shows all the time that was like their big bond and he was very close to his dad which is his whole life he was very close to his dad so they would go to gun shows they would hunt together and that was very important for steven It was during the spring of 2003 that another old friend of Stevens, his name was Chance Coombs, had sex with an underage girl in Colorado and was charged with sexually assaulting a child. Now, this is another thing to kind of note. Um, Same thing like you mentioned, Chris Peterson, he was charged with molesting a girl and that was one of Stevens' friends as well. So just keep that in your mind. So now he has two friends that have basically pedophile charges on them and they're young themselves. So just keep that in mind. In 2003, Stephen moved to Nova Scotia in order to live with his mom. And it's at this point that Stephen was actually denied from entering the military because of his asthma. Can you imagine him in the military, though, with his love for guns? I wonder if that's why he joined. Oh, 100%. So he could touch heavy-duty assault rifles and the latest and greatest guns and equipment and And maybe use them? On people? Perhaps. That would be my guess. And let's see, this is in 2003. Yeah. So two years after 9-11. So he would probably be going to an area where he would be able to use guns that he loves against minorities, which he hates. That's right. He did say he hated minorities. Mm -hmm. And the United Nations. And asthma. So I could see him committing a war crime if he were able to. Absolutely. So maybe it was a good thing he was denied. Yes, thank God. And in the beginning of 2005, Stephen moved into a rooming house in Whitney Pier, Sydney, which was a part of Nova Scotia. Shortly after he moved in, a man named Francis Doyle became a tenant at the rooming house as well. And this is important to know. I mentioned Francis because Francis actually had just been released from prison. For what, you say? Pedophile-based charges. 
So now Stephen had a roommate, essentially, that was a pedophile. So you're, you're seeing all these things, they're adding up. Okay, so he does not like pedophiles. That's, we're gonna touch on that, but he is very against them. Okay, sure, fair enough. Nobody really likes pedophiles, but he had a real vendetta against them. And to this day, we're not really sure why. Mm. But we know that his two of his friends have been convicted of pedophile-based charges. And now he had a roommate that was a pedophile. So these are kind of pieces we're using to find the solution of our puzzle. We know that Stephen hates pedophiles, sex offenders. He really started to take an interest in sex offenders in Maine on the Maine Registry. Which is interesting. At this time, there were 34 sex offenders on the registry, and he wrote down information for 29 of them. Which, honestly, like, I wish we knew why he kept out the five other ones. Right. Very interesting choice, but okay, whatever. He still clearly was planning something. His father had recently moved to Holton, Maine, and Stephen decided to take a little trip down there. Yes. Under the guise of visiting his father. Yes. And I do want to say, fun fact, I've been through Holton. Basically, the main turnpike that goes, it starts all the way down in Kittery, and then it goes all the way up to Holton. It stops in Holton. It's exit 302, I think is what it is. And that marks how many miles it goes up to the top of Maine. Fun fact. Holy shit. Yes. So it's not the tippity top. It's like about an hour from Presque Isle, where we talked about Presque Isle before. I've been to Presque Isle. My college roommate, Mackenzie, hey girl, she lives, she's from Presque Isle. And that's like the tippity tippity top. But Holton is like the next, like you mark that on your journey because it's the end of the highway kind of thing. So Holton, that being said, moose, plentiful. Humans, eh, not so much. A lot of trees and maple syrup, but not a lot of humans. It's a small town. And his dad lived there now. Yes. So, like you said, Katie, that was his... There he was. He was going to go visit his dada in Holton, Maine. Okay. Great. So, on April 11th of 2006, Stephen made two separate transactions from his bank. First, he withdrew 500 Canadian dollars and then withdrew 2,657 U.S. dollars and left only a balance of 61 cents in his bank account. Little suspicious... We see that kind of information when someone's A, about to run away and start over, or kill themselves. Interesting. Or someone who maybe didn't intend on coming back to that bank account, for whatever reason. On April 12th, the next day, Stephen left his apartment, which he had been living with three others at the time, and he told them that he was going to be going to somewhere called Bedeck, Cape Breton, which was in Canada. This was actually a lie. As you say to Katie, he was going to go visit his dada, who lived in Holton. That day, Stephen spent $1,076.32, where he purchased a whole new laptop, as well as a GPS mapping software. Before he even made it to Maine, his car broke down, and this was in Sackville, New Brunswick, which of course is a part of Canada. And so he pulled into an inn, and he spent the night there. Here, he proceeded to call one of his roommates and tell him that he had, in fact, made it to Bedeck, Cape Breton, and he was with his grandparents. Of course, this was a lie. And it's interesting to kind of look back and see, why did he tell his roommates? Did he ultimately plan on how it ended? Which we'll get into, but it seems like he maybe really didn't plan on coming back. On April 13th, Stephen called his dad from the inn that he had stopped at and asked him to come pick him up. 
which then they together drove to Holton, Maine, which was where his father, Ralph, lived. Apparently, Stephen didn't tell his employers back home uh, at the Canton restaurant in North Sydney that he was going to be away, as he was scheduled for a shift on April 15th, and he did not show up. Which is interesting, because what was his final plan then, if he wasn't telling his work that he was going to be gone? It's also on this day that one of his roommates called him, but his roommate never got a reply back. Stephen was 20 years old at this time. He had borrowed his father's truck after his car had broken down. He also borrowed a 45 caliber handgun. Oh. On April 16th, 2006, he hunted down two of the people on his list of Maine sex offenders, 57-year-old Joseph Gray in Milo, Maine, and 24-year-old William Elliott in Corinth, Maine. Joseph was sleeping in his living room on the couch after falling asleep to forensic files. His wife woke up to the dogs barking and went to wake Joseph up when she saw someone wearing dark clothing outside the window. Stephen shot Joseph from outside the window at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Joseph was convicted in Massachusetts in 1992 of raping a child and indecent assault and battery on a person under the age of 14. That's a pretty serious allegation. So he was not, by any means, a great person. He clearly made some bad decisions, and we don't want to gloss over that fact. Regardless, he was shot while he was sleeping in his own home. That's also not great. Like, that's not... I wouldn't wish that upon him. Definitely. Yeah, that's not... That's brutal. At 8 a.m. on April 17th, Stephen arrived at William's mobile home 25 miles from Joseph's. He knocked on the door and William answered. Stephen then shot him several times. William's girlfriend actually quickly, just quick thinking, Mm -hmm. took a picture of the license plate as Stephen was leaving. William was charged in March of 2002 with sexual abuse of a minor. He served four months in jail. For sexually abusing a minor. Yeah. That's not super. No, that seems a little light. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And sadly, that is not uncommon with sex offenders, pedophiles, especially with sexual abuse, sexual Mm -hmm. assault. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're lucky if you even go to jail. You even go to prison. You even have a trial. Right. Up until recently, they didn't really – recently, I say, meaning, like, within the past two decades, they didn't even consider rape a felony or really a serious crime because nobody was murdered. Mm. And that's really messed up because, I mean, obviously, rape is a very serious crime. Molesting, sexual assault, whatever you want to say, all of those things, awful. And then also adding in the fact of a minor, that's very, very messed up. And the fact that it was not considered a felony for a long time is sad and kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Katie, William Elliott's girlfriend is a true hero in this story because she took down his license plate, which, of course, was the license plate of the pickup truck that belonged to his dad. But she still got it anyway. So, obviously, she called the police and gave them the license plate number. Eventually, they were able to locate Stevens borrowed pickup truck, which was in Bangor, Maine. And I only know this from experience. Bangor is about two hours south from Holton. About Bangor is like the middle of Maine, honestly, like along the coast. Yeah. Yeah. 
about two hours from Portland. So it's kind of like an in-between. The truck was left behind at a bus station, which clued police into where Stephen maybe was headed. Stephen also unloaded his ammunition into the toilet tank inside the bathroom, which was discovered by police. Which is interesting, because I didn't know, like, the fact that they checked that is very smart. I hate to admit it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. At the bus station, Stephen bought a ticket to Boston and gets on a Greyhound bus. With the police, of course, they discovered the truck, they discovered the ammunition, and they also confirm with the people working at the bus station that Stephen bought a bus ticket to Boston. When the bus arrived at the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority in Boston, the police were hot on his trail. They were pretty much right behind him. And because they're police, they could speed on the highway. <laughs> and so they basically caught up with Stephen. And I'm sure, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure they called ahead and said, hey, we're, we have a suspect. You know, try not to be alarmed. But when this bus comes in, maybe delay it a little bit because we need to apprehend so-and-so. I bet you that probably was communicated at the very least. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, police also temporarily shut down the main sex offender registry. Interesting. Because they figured out, oh, yeah, Joseph, that's crazy. We know him. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, William. Oh, we know him. What do these two people have in common? Oh, yeah. shut off the registry because we have a almost serial killer. Vigilante justice. Vigilante justice psychopath yeah. running around with a gun targeting people inside their homes. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is not a bad move by police because clearly they were trying to protect their sex, like the sex offenders of their state, which of course, you know, can be a moral gray area because of the things that these people did. But I mean, they don't deserve to be murdered. So I think that was a good move. Right. Death by firing squad years after they committed the crime. Like, right. no. Yeah. It's kind of insane. But it was good that they did that. Stephen was sitting 13 rows back behind the driver when police boarded the bus and asked the driver to turn on all of the lights. As soon as police got onto the bus, Stephen pulled out a Colt 45 and shot himself directly in the head, with the bullet exiting and piercing through a window. Thankfully, nobody else was hurt physically. Five people were behind Stephen, and they were sent to Boston Medical Center to be examined as they had been splattered with blood and potentially human brain matter. So... I can't imagine being those passengers just going on a normal bus ride and then ultimately ending with brain matter splattered all over their bodies. Trauma for life. 1,000%. I would never get on a bus again. Nope. And that's why I say no one was harmed physically, because mentally, even if you were 29 rows back and you weren't even anywhere near it, you were in... That's so... That's so awful. That's really scary. Unfortunately, and most obviously, Stephen was dead immediately, and this in my opinion, and to put it bluntly, was a complete cop-out. I think he was planning to kill himself the whole time, just given the way he was talking to his roommates, lying, all the money he took out of his bank accounts, not really caring that his car was broken down, all this stuff. I think it was pretty evident that he knew he was either going to kill himself or maybe die by suicide via cop. Yep. That would seem like it was his ultimate goal. And and we say all the time when these perpetrators kill themselves after committing such an awful act, pussies. Right. It's the easy way out. They're avoiding the whole justice system. Yeah. They're taking matters into their own hands, which is not fair. And now Joseph's family and William's family 
don't have any answers as to why they their sons were targeted. Their brothers were targeted. Their loved one was targeted. And yes, we know that Stephen had something against sex offenders. And we know they were on the registry. Does that mean they deserve to be murdered? No. We were talking before the episode. You don't have to be a terrible, heinous monster to be on the sex offender registry. Not at all. You really don't. You could be peeing in a bush mm-hmm. and someone walks by and sees you and feels offended and calls the police. Or you could be a cop on patrol and see someone peeing in the woods and get them for indecent exposure. Yeah, if especially if they're male. If their penis is out even a little bit, which as we all know is how a male person urinates. Yeah, I mean, that could be... If they were even, like, within, like, a mile or two of a school, right? say. Yep. You can get indecent exposure charges from that. Oh, my gosh. I know of someone who had sex in their car. Yeah. And got caught. Right. And was put on the registry for that. Which, I mean, I can see some logic to it, but at the same time, I don't think that they deserve to have their name pasted on a registry for everyone to see, knowing that they were having sex in a car. A lot of teenagers do that. It's not that weird. I feel like it's not that uncommon. No, not at all. And to be labeled that way, and the person next to you on that registry could have legitimately harmed a child? Yeah. Not the same thing entirely, but they're regarded as the same. Right. So thinking about Stephen, how he murdered these two men, and these two men legitimately did horrible things to children? Yeah. Imagine if he went after someone who peed in the woods. Right. And there was a walking trail right there and someone saw. Right. Or a couple who had sex in their car in a parking lot they thought was abandoned. Right. It's crazy to me. Yeah. You don't always have to be a bad person to be on the sex offender registry. Right. Is the registry full of the worst scums of the earth people? In the world? Sure. Yes, of course. And Stephen actually even referred to pedophiles as scums of the earth. Is he wrong? Not really. Not necessarily, no. Was he wrong for murdering them? Of yeah. course. Yeah. That's not right either. Why would it be his job? That is the vigilante side of it, I believe. Right. Who is he? Right. We know he thinks he's special. He's not God. You don't get to take other people's lives into your hands, regardless of the amount of awful shit that they did. Right. It just doesn't work that way. It's not. As to quote Michael Scott from The Office, who should be the judges and juries of our society? To which Angela Martin replies, the judges and the juries. (laughs) There's a reason why we have those systems in place, because they are the ones who should be taking care of that. For sure. Stephen had no right to enter a home and shoot somebody in front of his girlfriend because of, you know, yes, he did a very bad thing, but that didn't mean he deserved to be shot and killed. 100%. Yeah. Of course, now that Stephen was dead, the police were able to go through his things and made a few discoveries that were kind of interesting. His laptop was searched, an investigation revealed he had been planning on tracking down four other sex offenders. Great. I would like to know who they are and what they did, but it's besides the point. Yeah. They also found an animation of Jesus Christ armed with an assault rifle at someone's door. That is very weird. Did they specify if he made that or if he just found it? I wonder if he found it. 
And he just loved it. I guess so. He's weird. Witnesses said that just before the murder, Stephen converted to Christianity and referred to pedophiles as scums of the earth. Hmm. Which, honestly, that's kind of crazy to me because if you genuinely were a Christian, you would know that Jesus would never go anywhere near an assault rifle. He would not touch that with a 10-foot pole. First of all, because he was alive before that technology was even a thought. <laughs> that's the logical part of my brain. But also because you're right, Katie, that's the exact opposite of what he stands for. Right. Quote, unquote. Peace. Peace. How is even going near an assault rifle? That's besides the point. However, Stephen's a little skewed. We knew that from the beginning. Yeah. The laptop also contained an online blog. Stephen used this to express his hatred towards pedophiles and his obsession with guns. Oh. Another blog. Another one. He loves blogging. I think that's his secret hobby. <laughs> he just loves to blog. Or it could be the whole narcissistic, everyone needs to hear my thoughts. Yes. Rambling. I have to share this with the world. Yep. The blog also revealed that he targeted homosexuals, minorities, and women. He even had one section on the blog called, quote, How to Kill Yourself Like a Man, dedicated to suicide techniques. And I think this is a morbid thought, but I wonder if shooting yourself in the head was on that. Maybe how to shoot yourself in the head effectively? Yeah. Well, he clearly knew how, because as far as I could tell, he was, you know, dead upon the shot. Yes. He didn't have any functioning brain activity or anything like that. Stephen left behind belongings at his dad's house, which included a camouflage backpack with survival gear and three books. Oh. Art of War, okay. SAS Survival Guide, and a Bible. Thank God, literally, that he had that Bible. The irony is insane. Right. If you were following the Bible, wouldn't you, like, pick up a bunch of stones and like right stone them to death honestly like not guns no no not taking matters into your own hand not murdering people and it almost seems like if he had these books on survival tactics was he maybe psychotic and expecting an apocalypse was he maybe expecting to murder these people and then run off and survive himself in the woods or like what was he planning on he had a lot of weird things going on and psychotic ramblings on this yep. blog and it's just very interesting and also very sad because we'll never know why truly he did what he did he killed two people and did he notice that william's girlfriend took a photo of the license plate and that's why he ran perhaps because he also had that list of four others he was planning to target right it looks like in that time frame right it looks like he kind of mapped out how he could best get to all of those people. And he did, it took, there was a five-hour break between the murder of Joseph Gray and the murder of William Elliot. So it's almost like, was he canvassing and choosing those houses and those victims in between that time? Like, what was he doing? And it was the middle of the morning, like 4 a.m. What was he doing? You know? So obviously, like we were saying, it's very... It's an ethical dilemma within this awful story because, yes, the two victims were on the sex offender registry. And what they had done in their lives was not great. What Stephen had also done in his life was also not great. Mm -hmm. And it was evident from the very beginning that he was very, he was set up for something along these lines. 
given his ramblings, his list of all the things he hated, starting a coalition for protecting people against school or whatever, he clearly was troubled. I don't know where he thought he got the authority to kill sex offenders. Of course, people now speculate, was he himself molested as a child? Absolutely what I was thinking. And, you know, that I could see how that would make you hate sex offenders, of Mm -hmm. course. And he did say that he hated pedophiles on that blog. And some of his friends, too, later said that we used to make, we used to think that pedophiles were worse than murderers. And we used to always talk about how much we hated pedophiles. And that just seemed to be his fixation. And he just never let it go. And could it be because he was sexually assaulted himself? Yeah. And he thought he then was a vigilante and had the right to kill them. I think maybe his brain made him think that way. Mm -hmm. It's totally possible. Yeah. Guys, tell us what you think about this case. I want to know if you have theories about why Stephen committed these crimes and what he was going to do if he did not kill himself. Because I I think he was going to kill more people. Me too. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. And if you guys think if maybe suicide was his end goal as well, because I think it seems pretty evident. But I want to know what you think. So you can tell us your thoughts on this case on our Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. Oh, lowercase. Or you can send us an email about what you think or just general talking about what happened or literally anything at our email, which is TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. We are also available via our website. We have a contact page with a handy-dandy submission tool. You can send us your thoughts on this case, other cases we have covered, case suggestions, If you suggest us a case and we decide to cover it on an episode, we will give you a shout out if you so choose. There is also an option to be anonymous on there as well. If you scroll down a little further, there is our buy us a coffee section we just talked about at the top of this episode. Again, seriously, no pressure, you guys. Just being here alone is so incredible and we really appreciate all of you. More than we could ask for. If you want to show us your appreciation in a non-financial way, you could go to our Spotify and leave us a star review. You could go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a star review and or a written review. And just remember that we love you guys very much and we're so appreciative for you listening and sticking around. Damn right. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. (laughs) 